helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we had the pleasure of speaking with a very humble, young and disciplined leader. He was born in New York, grew up in Genoa, Italy, and has had job roles that took him to London and Madrid, where he worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers, Netherlands, where he worked at AP Moller Musk Group, and now based in Singapore, where he is a sixth generation CEO of his family business, Fratelli Kosalic. This is a very proud Italian, is not only very organized and a compassionate leader, he is also a top age group triathlete competing in long distance triathlon events around the world, including the Ironman. I would like to introduce and welcome you to our guest, Tim Kosalic. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Craig. It's really nice to be here. So I've known you for a few years now, and I, we used to uh, see you up in Asia. You were racing uh, and doing very well in triathlons, and I always knew you as someone very astute, and you know, talking to Jürgen, your coach, he, he was like, oh, you've got to get this guy on the show. So we're really excited to have you on today. Thank you. So Fratelli Kosalic, founded in 1857, is a very diverse company, active in a number of aspects of the shipping industry, from ship owning to ship agency, freight forwarding, catering, manning, yacht services, and marine fuel trading and supply. You've got a, a very big global business here with over 1,000 staff in more than 15 countries. What is your greatest challenge in dealing with multiple cultures, time zones, and industries? Um, well, I think the, the, the main is really um, being able to maintain uh, a productive and uh, um, nice interaction with, uh, with my people because um, um, I, I really see the, the job of the CEO as, as really being able to motivate and find out what motivates uh, our people. And as much as uh, nowadays we have technologies that allow us to communicate and do video conferencing and everything, um, it, it's still very difficult to, uh, to substitute completely uh, the the real human interaction and um, so the, the, the biggest challenges I have are really uh, making sure that I'm present, physically present with, uh, with my people when they need uh, and that I uh, take time uh, to, to spend with them. What do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of leading a family-owned business? Um, so the, uh, the main advantage I see is really in the relationship that we are able to establish with, uh, with our people. It's not just a job. Um, we don't reduce headcount uh, when when things don't go, don't go well, uh, when volumes are down. Uh, we, we always find a way to uh, either relocate our people to um, position them in another department or uh, to find them uh, a role within the company uh, or within the group. And, uh, and this effort from the company in looking after its people is uh, then really we, it translates into different relationship with our people. Our people, uh, they put a different efforts. Uh, they, they really see things long term. Uh, they, they're not so interested about uh, success today, but they're more interested in success in you know, the next years. Uh, and that is something that is quite rare, um, I think, in, uh, in let's call them normal companies. 
very comforting for your employees, I would imagine, to to know that you don't just lay people off and that you are looking to you know, try and boost other areas that need help or find ways to keep them engaged when when you are having some tough times or there are some challenges that you face? Yes, no, that's, that, that's very important. Uh, it shouldn't be confused uh, with uh, lack of performance. I mean, we have uh, uh, let people go because of lack of performance. Uh, so there's, uh, we, I think we are quite demanding in terms of performance, uh, but uh, we, we do not want uh, them to, to generate insecurity uh, in our people just based on how the economy goes, um, because that's something that's sometimes just out of control for, for our people and for us. So you know, coming from Italy, I mean, obviously you've had quite a global experience. Do you take kind of that Italian style of leadership and business and replicate that around the world, or do you have to adapt a lot? I think it's really about adapting. Um, having a global business means that you have people from different cultures and uh, uh, and different habits. And sometimes, you know, um, I, I get asked, "What, what is your, your leadership style?" And and I think it's not so much about leadership style. I mean, you you have your values, and and those are important. And I don't think those change uh, regardless of where you are in the world. Uh, but your your approach uh, has to be different depending on the culture, uh, also depending on the level of experience of the person uh, you are leading. Uh, you cannot have the same uh, leadership style and the same approach with someone who has two years work experience compared to someone who has thirty years work experience. Uh, you cannot be as hands on with someone who's very experienced uh, as you would be with uh, uh, with a, a new joiner. Um, so um, I think it's very important to being able to adapt to different cultures and uh, having worked in Northern Europe for, for many years, I was initially very used to a, a very direct uh, form of communication. And, uh, and when I moved to Asia, uh, that generated a bit of problems for me, uh, at least at the beginning, because I, uh, I was not getting the reactions I was expecting. So living in you know, leading in Asia now, how has that changed your leadership style and, you know, maybe can you expand a little bit around the key aspects that you find really important in the way you lead your people? Um, so I think the main part was really this understanding uh, that depending on where you are, uh, you need to be very aware of cultural differences. Uh, even if I, I traveled um, to different places and lived in very, many different countries, even before coming to Asia, uh, until I came to Asia, I wasn't 100% aware of how important this cultural uh, aspect and, uh, is. And uh, so that, that was the, the main uh, eye-opening experience for me. Um, then uh, coming to Asia specifically, I think it's, uh, it's really about uh, being respectful uh, of um, you know how they uh, how they think how they work their habits um, obviously this concept of uh, not losing face uh, for them is very important so um, while in uh, in northern Europe you would just openly say during a meeting that you know you're wrong uh, and uh, or you know you're not doing a good job and and that is uh, absolutely fine although. Obviously, the, the recipient of the feedback will not be pleased, but that, that's absolutely acceptable. Uh, in, in Asia, that is uh, absolutely <laughs> a big no. Uh, if you want to um, give, uh, let's say, negative feedback, you do it on a one-on-one, -on -one and, and you also find uh, a, a certain way to do it. It has to be uh, much mm, smoother and, uh, and constructive uh, than it would be in, in another culture. 
So, Tim, you talk about um, North, Northern Europe and then now into Asia. Um, how would you perceive you do the, the same sort of thing in North America? Uh, North, North America is uh, uh, somewhere in between, I would say. Um, it's not as, as direct as Northern Europe, uh, but are, it's certainly more similar to Northern Europe than it is to Asia. Um, and, uh, and I think in, uh, in, in the US, although I mean, I, I have to give a disclaimer here, although I, um, I lead uh, people in the US, I've never lived in the US. So um, my understanding of the American culture is not as uh, complete as, as it is of uh, you know, other parts of the world. So that's, I think, also important. But my, my, my perception that it's, it's definitely closer to European culture uh, than to an Asian culture. So, so how would you, you know, you're obviously a top triathlete and you're dealing in performance there. How would you define high performance as a CEO? Um, high performance as a CEO, um, yeah, I think ultimately, ultimately is, is really how uh, well are you able to uh, motivate your people. Because um, people are motivated by different things and uh, and also different types of uh, jobs, and uh, you have those who like routine, uh, those who like unexpected things every day, uh, those who like who like traveling, and those who like to stay at their desk all the time. Um, and as a CEO, you have to make sure that everyone is motivated. Uh, you can have, you cannot have the same approach to everyone, uh, and um, and you have to make sure that you you have everyone performing. At their best, uh, so um, maybe you can uh, compare it to to the job of a coach. Uh, a coach uh, has a number of athletes; they uh, they coach, and they have to make sure that they uh, they all make the, the most out of their skills. So, Tim, with performance being so important to you um, as a CEO, how do you do? You have some rituals or some, um, I guess, uh, habits that you use to bring your A game to work every day, or when you're motivating your people? Um, yeah, so um, one thing is, for example, when, I, when I'm in the office, I need to be uh, in the office also mentally. Uh, it's uh, I, I make an effort not to be elsewhere. So um, normally my my normal days, I wake up around 5, I, I train uh, 5 to 7, uh, then I have breakfast, I play a little bit with, uh, with my son, uh, and then around uh, probably half past eight or um, 8.45, I, I start replying to emails from from the day before, because uh, of course I have all the backlog of emails from US and, and Europe, uh, but I, I do it at home. Uh, and I do it at home because when I come to the office, I want to be done with all that. Uh, and I want to be able to, to be present physically and mentally uh, for, for, for my people here. Uh, so that is probably one of the, one of the important things I, I focus on is this uh, being present. And, and the same applies to when I, when, when I travel and uh, when I spend time with, uh, with the people from the different offices, I want to be present mentally. Uh, so I, want, I don't want to be there uh, you know, looking at my phone all the time and uh, uh, looking if I have emails and everything. Because of course I have emails, but uh, ultimately if, I, if I'm there uh, traveling to see uh, these guys, it's because I want to spend time with them and listen to them. So do you only answer emails in the morning or do you have other times during the day that you allocate for 
answering. Yeah, I have other times. No, I, I wish I wish I could afford to have only only a morning uh, email <laughs> session. But uh, no, the reality is I, I, I answer emails uh, throughout the day. But I, um, let, let's say that the, the effort I make is that when I'm in a meeting, uh, I do not uh, I do not look at emails. That's that's commendable because there's not a lot of people that can actually do that. So congratulations there. No, well, I just I said I, I make an effort. I didn't say I managed to do. <laughs> <laughs> so the family values and rituals must be very ingrained and hold very strong in all decisions that you that are made. What words yeah. would you associate with the company? So um, the, the the main uh, aspect, I think, the main uh, value that we have is uh, is really uh, passion uh, for for what we do, um, and uh, and and the passion is important because um, it really. Uh, relates to why people uh, join our business, and uh, as a family member, I was not only I was never uh, forced to join the business, but I was always told by my father that if I wanted to join the business at some point, that I they, they would uh, happily consider it, but that I would never uh, become a multi-billionaire or have a Ferrari or, or a private yacht, um, and that if money was the main driver, then probably I would have made more money somewhere else. And, and that is important because it allows us as a company to select those who want to join uh, only uh, or mainly because they're passionate about the business, they're passionate about being entrepreneurs, uh, they're passionate about the uh, integrity uh, that we have as a, as a group. So integrity probably is, is the other word that comes to mind. Um, and, um, and, and we see that in, in many uh, aspects of how we run our business. For example, in 161 years uh, of the business, we've never distributed dividends. Uh, so we've always reinvested 100% of, of, the, of the profits into the business. Um, so you know you, you you hear a lot about um, uh, owners who say, ah, oh, you know, my, my business is my life, and uh, I do everything for it. But then uh, every year they take a lot of money out of the business. Uh, for us, uh, it, it's it's quite an important message that we send to our our people as well because they see that we as a family uh, we literally put all our money into the business um, so it's um, it, it's really about commitment passion and integrity I would say Tim I'd like to ask you so far in your CEO career what's been your proudest moment because just by the sound of what you're talking about there you know not distributing dividends and that just the proudness I can sense in your voice there's some some amazing moments already uh, yeah um so I've had a lot of uh, difficult moments uh, because we've had uh, offices uh, that were not doing very well. Uh, we've had offices uh, where uh, I found out that managers were not super honest, let's put it this way. Um, so um, I, those were uh, tough moments where um, I, I learned everything I didn't learn during my MBA, I learned it there. Uh, and um, and then I would say that going back to your question, solving those situations 
is then what kind of um, pays for for all that um, you know suffering in a way uh, and the satisfaction of seeing an office turned around that is now very successful uh, after going through a lot of difficult times and changes uh, that is really uh, the the main satisfaction um, as well as seeing uh, young uh, young people who join the company and they grow they get more experience, and in some cases, uh, it happens that they leave, um, because um, another challenge that we have as a family business is also um, kind of adapting to uh, a society where there's, uh, the concept of employment for life doesn't really exist anymore, um, because of course, if you look at millennials and, and new generations, uh, after two, three years in, in a row, uh, it's, it's enough for them, so it's a um, I think uh, adapting to that trend is very important for us. And, and, and for me, if I see someone who's been with us and has worked really hard and well for two, three years, and then they decide to do something else, I'm disappointed, of course, but at the same time, I'm, I'm happy to see people developing. So um, I, I, I would say those are my, my proudest moments. Tell us about your, your sporting background and, and life as a professional athlete before you got onto triathlon? Yeah, so I've, I've always been sport. I've always liked sports. And uh, uh, my main sport has been water polo for, for many years. Uh, and I've played water polo in many countries, in Italy, in, uh, in the UK, in Spain, in the Netherlands, uh, always um, in either first or second division. Uh, never made it to a national team, but uh, I was, I was a, an okay water polo player. And um, and water polo is, has always um, struck me as, as a very nice sport in terms of a good mix of uh, endurance and team sports uh, and a sport that requires a lot of discipline and dedication. Um, so um, I think that was a, a, a very nice uh, way also for me to integrate in uh, uh, new cultures every time I was changing. Uh, city. Uh, so when I moved to uh, to the UK, I, I found a, found a team and uh, immediately had a group of friends. Um, then I moved to uh, Spain uh, and again same thing. I had a group of friends there uh, who were my teammates, and the same in the Netherlands and so on. Um, and then at some point, I um, I decided to uh, to give it a go with uh, with triathlon and. Um, and that was a bit unexpected. What happened was uh, that one of my uh, uh, little sisters uh, was uh, diagnosed with uh, brain cancer. And, um, and then she, eventually, uh, long story short, she, was, uh, she, was, uh, she had surgery. Everything went unexpectedly uh, well. Uh, and, uh, and now she's, um, she's, she's fine. She has an absolutely normal life. And uh, uh, she's uh, 100% recovered. Uh, but at that time, doctors told us that there would be basically no chance that she would make it also because she was uh, 10 years old at the time and uh, uh, it was uh, too long of a surgery for a small body etc etc and uh, so then when uh, when everything went fine we uh, from we from from the family we all felt that we we had to give back uh, some of the luck that we had uh, as, as a family and and that is when I, I thought, okay, how can I raise some money for, for this hospital, this pediatric hospital where, uh, where she was treated? Uh, and then I'd heard about this Ironman thing, but I, I didn't really know what it was. Uh, and um, so I registered. It was uh, Ironman Zurich in 2010. Uh, and this was six months before the race. 
at that point, I never cycled in my life. Well, I, I obviously I cycled as a kid, but never really with a, with a road bike. Uh, I was a good swimmer, of course, because I was uh, uh, playing water polo. But I, uh, I was not um, a good runner at all, um, and um, so I thought, okay, I'll, uh, I'll certainly uh, get some people interested in this Ironman thing if I register and if I uh, start raising money for it. And um, so then I asked colleagues, uh, family, and friends to uh, commit to donate, uh, donating a certain amount uh, to this hospital, depending on how I, I would do uh, at the race. So I basically I gave, I gave them uh, four options. I said, I would like you to commit today, uh, six months before the race, uh, to donating a certain amount in case I uh, register, just because you want to donate, uh, or uh, another amount if I finish, uh, another amount if I finish within 14 hours, or another amount if I finish within 12 hours. Um, and then, of course, I explained what, what the Ironman was. I also explained a little bit about my my sport sporting background uh, and my fitness level and everything. Um, and um, and for me, the the I think that the biggest um, surprise was um, how big uh, of a difference there is between when you uh, train with a purpose uh, as opposed to when you train just for the sake of it. And, uh, and in this case, I was uh, really training uh, because I wanted these people to donate to the hospital. And, uh, and that gave me a completely different uh, view and, and, and push in, in what I was doing. And Tim, can you recall the amount that was donated to the hospital? Yes, it was. Uh, so uh, basically, the way it works is, that, as I said, people were committing to donate, uh, donating a certain amount depending on my performance. So the the commitment uh, in case I participated, uh, regardless of the of the result, uh, was about twenty thousand uh, US dollars. Uh, whereas on the other end of the spectrum, the commitment to donate in case I finish within twelve hours uh, was uh, just over hundred. Hundred thousand dollars, and and that was also because the way I, I phrased uh, the, the the email and the communication, uh, I made it look like it was impossible that I would finish within twelve hours, <laughs> and uh, and which was I mean it was intentional, uh, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't entirely uh, untrue in the sense that I had never cycled before, and of course you know in six months going from there. To, to cycling 180 kilometers and then running a marathon, uh, I was also not not entirely sure about my my ability to uh, to do it. Um, so anyway, eventually I uh, I managed to do it. I finished in uh, in 12 hours and sorry in 10 hours and 26 minutes. Um, so and, and yeah, so then I was able to to raise the whole uh, hundred thousand dollars. What a fantastic achievement! Congratulations! What a journey! Thank you. Yeah, it was really nice. So, you, so you obviously, you got the bug after that first time, and you continued on, and you ended up competing in the Holy Grail Triathlon in the Ironman World Championships in Kona, Hawaii. Tell us yeah. about that journey to Kona and what your experience was like racing the lava fields. Yeah, so it was uh, it was amazing. Um, I remember after Ironman Zurich. Uh, well, of course, as everyone uh, says, you know, everyone uh, during the the race says, uh, "Why am I here? I'm not going to do it ever again." Uh, and um, and to a certain extent, that that was my my feeling at the time. I thought, well, I like this triathlon thing, but I um, I think I, I would probably prefer uh, shorter distance. 
So that is actually what I did. I, I focused on half distance uh, for, for a few years. And uh, until then, I, uh, I met with, uh, with my coach, Jürgen. And, uh, and we were talking and um, somehow Kona came up as a, as a topic. And uh, I asked him, do you think I, I, I could uh, qualify one day? And he said, well, you know, if you, if you train uh, enough, uh, you, could, uh, you could make it. And uh, so that's, uh, that's when we uh, started uh, trying. And um, we, uh, together, we decided that uh, Iron Lankawi in Malaysia uh, would be uh, the, best, uh, the best race for me to, uh, to give it a try because it's a, it's a hot race. I, I race quite well in the heat. Uh, also, it's, it's very close to Singapore. Uh, so logistically, it wouldn't require too much traveling and no time zone differences and so on. Uh, so I, uh, I, I raced in Lankawi and won my age group and, uh, and qualified. And, uh, and that was really, really nice. I, I think that racing in Kona was fantastic, but Ironman Malaysia, when I qualified, that was really um, almost the end of the journey uh, for me, because um, for me, it was, it was a goal to go to Kona, uh, and uh, the, the hardest part was really to, to be able to qualify for it. Uh, and then going to Kona was, uh, was a fantastic experience. I, I also got married uh, just a couple of weeks before uh, Hawaii, so we went to Hawaii uh, for, for a honeymoon, although my, my, my wife will, uh, will tell you that that wasn't our honeymoon, that I, I still owe her a honeymoon. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and, and, it was, and it was really good. Uh, we spent a couple of weeks there, and uh, being there with all these people, uh, best in the world, and fantastic atmosphere. So it's... Um, it was, uh, and it was, of course, as as tough as uh, as expected, but again, the experience was uh, was fantastic. And, and look, yeah, I know going to Kona, it is it's a, one of those amazing places, but it is it, it it's kind of weird, right? You qualify and you're like, oh wow, I've I've done it. Like it's a so much emotions going behind that, and yeah. then you get to the big dance, you get to Kona, and it's like you just go and enjoy it a little bit more. So it's pretty fun. Yeah. So Tim, with that, with those fantastic triathlon experiences, um, what do you think? Um, you know the similarities between a high performance CEO and a, and a high performance triathlete might be. Um, I think number one is discipline, um, because uh, you, you need discipline in in, in both um, aspects. Um, as you know, in triathlon, um, when the, the alarm goes off at five a.m. Uh, I, 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 I am not lying. It's, uh, of course, uh, I, I also would like to sleep a little bit longer. Uh, but um, eventually, you, you have a goal and uh, you, you need commitments, and, uh, and then you just get out of bed and, uh, and you start training. Uh, and the same goes for, uh, for the role of the CEO. Uh, it's, uh, it's not nice all the time. Uh, you have tough moments, you have uh, a lot of moments in which you're alone. Uh, in which you have to decide things on your own, knowing that you might be wrong. Uh, you have to take your responsibilities and, uh, and you have to be there. You have to be there uh, all the time. Um, so um, one of the things I was discussing with, uh, with my wife recently is that I, um, since I joined my family business, I've never set my out-of-office uh, on my email. 
uh, because I'm never out of the office. <laughs> it's a, uh, although I might uh, go on holiday for a few days here and there, uh, but I'm always available. Um, so it's um, I think it, it can be tough in the long term, but um, I think it's it's one of the aspects of the job. So obviously, a lot of resilience is required, and and you've got to be thinking that that kind of that long game. And you've been yeah. with your coach Jurgen Zach now for quite a number of years. So why is having a coach so important to you? And also, what is Jurgen's greatest asset as a coach? Yeah, so um, the importance of the coach is um, twofold for me. One is, um, of course, a coach um, brings his experience, uh, his knowledge, uh, and uh, and that's a huge added value. Of course, assuming it's a, it's the right coach. Um, on the other hand, for me, it's also important to be able to uh, not think about what am I supposed to do. Uh, because thinking about what am I supposed to do is already what I do all the time uh, for, for, for my, my, my job and for my family. Um, and I, I don't want to be thinking about, okay, should I run? Should I swim? Uh, should I swim hard or easy? Uh, should I take a day off? Um, I, I really prefer to outsource all that to someone who knows more than me uh, and, and who can help me uh, with that. Um, also with, uh, with the organ, since we've been uh, working together for uh, number of years now uh, he also knows uh, my strengths he, he knows my weaknesses he also knows uh, what I can do and what I cannot do uh, in terms of um, when I'm when I'm traveling he knows that when I'm in uh, uh, London I can go running but I cannot go cycling uh, he knows that when I'm in uh, Italy I have uh, indoor trainer at home and then there's a swimming pool where I can go swimming I can uh, go and ride on, on the hills uh, he knows that when I'm in Singapore there's no hills there's only flats uh, but I have a 50 meters pool uh, just downstairs uh, so it, there's a lot of efficiencies that, we, that we've gained uh, over the years by, by knowing each other uh, uh, and uh, we share a calendar, so he knows when I travel, he knows where I am, uh, and he is very good at adapting uh, the, the training schedule uh, to to my family and, and business uh, needs. Um, in terms of Jürgen himself, I think that the one thing that attracted me uh, to you know joining his team and uh, and to him as a coach was uh, um, his being so approachable and uh, available and nice to to everyone, regardless of whether uh, they were uh, top-performing athletes or beginners. And you see that he's uh, not only a very knowledgeable and experienced coach, but he's very passionate about what he does. And, uh, and he loves sharing his knowledge. He loves giving advice and uh, talking to people. And, uh, and, and, and that's really uh, the type of person I want to work with, someone who likes his job uh, and who's not... Uh, uh, arrogant, who's not uh, uh, only talking to someone because uh, that, that's a, a, a top athlete. Um, so um, it, it's really his uh, qualities as a person that uh, brought me to him. Yeah, it's, he's a pretty amazing guy and done a really, really good job from the coaching point of view. Yeah. We all know smart people have great answers, but the best people have great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? 
Uh, well, that's that's quite easy. I uh, just uh, uh, last week I uh, went for the first time to uh, a shipyard in the south of Japan and spent a few days there um, with seeing how these these people work, uh, the passion that they put into uh, what they do. Uh, it was really eye opening. There was this uh, uh, ship that was uh, going to be uh, inaugurated, and uh, and when the ship sailed off, uh, the workers on the yard they started crying. And, uh, and and that for me was was incredible. I mean, it's it's a ship, and but 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 for them it, it was really like their baby, and they've been working on this ship for two years. And the fact that uh, the ship was sailing off and they wouldn't see the ship again, uh, it was very emotional, and uh, so it, it was really uh, impacting for me to see the, this, this sea. A very proud nation. Yes, incredible. And rightly so. Uh, now, Tim. As the CEO of your company, uh, what health and wellness initiatives do you try and impart um, across the board with everybody? Yes, so um, one easy thing that I do is um, I, I uh, give every uh, employee an allowance, uh, $50 per month, uh, to be spent on sport-related um uh, activities, uh, whether it's signing up for a race or going to a yoga class or uh, signing up for a gym, um, and uh, and that's something that um, basically every uh, employee has access to. Um, I also uh, organize uh, for you know maybe a couple of times a year uh, to go for a run. Uh, altogether, maybe we sign up for a race um, with, with people from the office. Um, and then the, the other two things I do are um, mostly uh, trying to uh, to be an example. Uh, and um, I, I share a little bit of, of what I do and my passion for triathlon. Um, Trying to, to to send a message that it's 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 good to have a balanced life, uh, that life is not just working um, or watching TV or going shopping, but it's uh, it's also you know, spending time outdoor and doing sports. Um, and then uh, I also volunteer as a, as a coach for uh, disabled kids um, for uh, running. Uh, these are uh, kids with uh, mental disabilities. And um, so I, I also uh, involve some of my uh, employees uh, in, in this and, and I try to uh, take them with me uh, to this uh, training session with these disabled kids. And, and that's a very uh, impactful uh, experience because you see the passion and, and effort that these kids put into what they do uh, despite their disabilities and, uh, and and after that you really feel so lucky uh, about you know being able to do whatever you want uh, but then you uh, yourself you also put more more effort and more passion in what you do that's a that's a very humbling experience no doubt yeah yeah, yeah definitely um, I, I guess well, a final question for me, Tim, is uh, who's made the greatest impact on your career and, and why is that so? I would say my, my, my father um, has made the, the, the biggest impact. He's been uh, a role model and an example for me and seeing how hard uh, he's worked all his life and, uh, and again, the passion that he put in, in what he was doing. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, feeling his support uh, regardless of whether I joined the family business or not, uh, he always wanted me to uh, work hard. Uh, he always wanted me to uh, have interest, to have a hobby, to uh, do um, sports and everything. Uh, 
but I, uh, I've always felt the support uh, from him. I never felt any any sort of pressure. Uh, so definitely, I would say that my father um, is the one who had the, uh, had the biggest impact. That's great, and you can really see that family bond there coming through, and, and everything you've spoken about today. So it's really mm-hmm. nice. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Tim. Uh, we've got some wonderful insights into the way that you lead a global team working inside a family business and the advantages and disadvantages to that. A lot of the performance aspects that you see in both an athlete and in the CEO world and how you connect them together. So it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Tim. Uh, Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much to you both. It was a pleasure being here and a great idea with this podcast. Oh, thank you. We we hope uh, hope you enjoy it and I know a lot of our listeners are getting some great feedback and we'll learn a lot from you today thank you our active ceo wellness tip is around um, the concept of how you increase your exercise and how you increase your exercise safely and not um, overdoing it so to speak yeah because you want to increase your work length your workout length your intensity and volume but you know, when when do you know when to do that and how much do you want to increase it by yeah, look, there's definitely a general rule of thumb that says a five to no more than 10% type rule on a, on a building over each week is a really good way to start. Um, but I guess my idea would be consult with your coach. Oh, definitely. Because, you know, if you increase more than 10% in one hit, then you put a lot of stress on your stress loads on things like your muscles, your ligaments, tendons, bones, and other major organs. And the last thing you want to do is for one of them to to rupture or to break and then you're back to square one or maybe even further back where you've got to rebuild uh, and recovery process from from that injury. Yeah, absolutely. And I know it's a big one that um, both myself and Craig talk about is uh, uh, the periodization. So you sort of work on a three-week cycle where you build up over a period of uh, three weeks and then the fourth week might be a deload or a recovery or an adaptation to the workload type week. So you don't just continue to try and build, 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 build you just get flat and stale and injured. You need to have that sort of method where you're deloading um, or adapting to the workload. Yeah, it's really important to remember you don't actually get faster or stronger while you're doing the workout or putting the stress loads on. It's when you're recovering. So you've got to get that that stress load, building up the stress load and then getting that recovery right so that you get the optimal performance gains in both your strength, your speed, your power, over the long term and look it'd have to be no different in your working life also Craig Um, you know when you have those really heavy weeks and you're just going just day after day after day after day that's not sustainable and you really need to plan in a bit of a deload or that um, adaptation is not the right word for uh, work stress but just a bit of a a break from the workload and that's where you know a business coach or a life coach or even your sporting coach can talk to you about that around okay well how long can I stress myself in the workplace before I need to back off. And it's both a mental aspect as well as a physical one. And people don't realize that. Mm. Well, you've got to take that break. And it's challenging, right? Especially when you're a CEO where you think you have to be on the whole time. And sometimes you do for a period of time. But for the long end game, it's important that you get the recovery so you can recharge the batteries and be able to deliver high performance to your staff, to your clients, and ensure that the business is growing effectively. Yeah, and it's that whole concept we've spoken about before about being uh, reactive um, or working and being proactive with how you plan plan your workload. 
Ben, it's been another exciting show. You're having Timothy Koslich on the call today in from Singapore. What an amazing guy, you know, to be able to step outside the family, go work in other countries, work for other people, and then prove to both himself and to his family that family. he was ready to come into the family business. Yeah, and, and what a fantastic concept about the family business. Um, they just don't take family in. You, you really have to go out and find your feet, so to speak, in the business world, and then you still have to apply for the job. Now, that was really interesting to hear also. Yeah, I think it's important. It's, it's showing to the rest of the organization, they've got 1,000 staff, that you've got to prove that you have the qualities to deliver performance in that business. And, you know, they are. They, they're wanting to be the best shipping company in the world. They don't want to be just another shipping company. And how interesting was it when uh, he was explaining that they don't pay dividends to themselves. They For seven generations, 170 years, was it? Yeah, pretty close to that. Uh, they been putting money, every bit of money back into the business. That, that's astounding, really. Yeah, it shows the pride and the humility that they have for making a difference in the world and, and delivering a product or opportunities for people to be able to move products around the world and do it in the most efficient manner. And it's not about having a Ferrari or having that lavish lifestyle that they potentially could have. They're a big company. Yeah, he spoke, spoke to us about that. It was quite... Um, I guess a very humble man, but a very humble family, obviously, and very proud of what they do. Well, you know, that humbleness really shone through when he talked about why he did his first Ironman and how that came about. You know, he talked about an incredibly tough period of that family's life where they've got a young girl who's got brain cancer, just told probably that she won't be able to you know, handle the, the therapy so because it's so, it was so tough. And she made it through that resilience that found and then for them to turn around and do something that allowed them to earn money. And what a clever way for yeah. raising funds. Yeah, absolutely. What, a, what an astounding story that is. Impressive. You know, you, I, I like the way that he went, okay, well, I'm just, just to turn up how much and then here's my performance goals. And it's a great way to look at performance incentives in a business as well. How can you do that to not only reward and recognize your stuff, but to really motivate them to go, all right, you can deliver this, but if you deliver this, here's a greater outcome. And talking about motivating his staff and his people, uh, how about that incentive of uh, $50 per month to every employee uh, to have some sort of active lifestyle? I mean, that's a massive financial commitment. And it didn't sound like Tim was worrying about the financial. He was, he was genuinely concerned about people's wellness. How fantastic is that? Yeah, oh, brilliant. And then he, I think what he said, three or four times a year, he tried to, organ or he picked a race or a run or something they did together. And I think that's really important too. So it's not only just about that health and wellness of looking after your individual self, but it's also around creating that support network around and helping everyone else like a team to you know reach their goals or do something together and bring people closer as a company. You can certainly say Tim falls in the cat category of active CEO and certainly where the ordinary don't belong would be certainly something you could say about Tim. Oh, yeah, and you can see that. And he's, you know, he's worked in different countries around the world. He's, you could see it probably in his voice today where he was thinking a lot because he's dealing with English second language here and a lot of our guests are like that. So you have to be a little bit patient when you listen to them. But they've got some amazing, the depth of knowledge that he's got there and his real passion to 
be active and healthy and make a difference and deliver as a CEO. This is the Active CEO with Ordinary Don't Belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.